Welcome to WORT's Weekend Review, a collection of our favorite stories from our nightly news show on the mighty WORT 89.9 FM, community-powered radio broadcasting from Bedford Street in Madison, Wisconsin. Thank you for joining us. I'm Dylan Brogan. Hundreds of UW-Madison students and faculty walked out of the class this week to protest the recent arrest of a student for graffiti. UW police officers detained 21-year-old Denzel McDonald during a class on black visual culture for spray-painting slogans about racism on university buildings. In the wake of several racially charged incidents on campus, many are asking the UW to do more to support students of color, and some of them took that message to the streets. WORT's Darian Lehman was there. Michael Davis, a graduate student in Afro-American Studies, helped to organize a student and faculty walkout this morning that drew hundreds to Bascom Hill. The university wants us to believe that, oh, this is weird. It's rare. This has been happening since the inception of UW-Madison. The only crime on this campus is white supremacy. Davis, together with members of the racial justice community group Freedom Inc., laid out a list of demands that included community control over the UWPD and the exoneration of King of all criminal and student misconduct charges. We demand that the case and investigation against King, formerly known as Denzel McDonald, is completely dismissed, considering that his civil and human rights were violated. Let me say dismissed! Craig Werner, chair of Afro-American Studies at UW-Madison, says the department did not participate officially in today's walkout. But earlier this week, the department did issue a public letter affirming its commitment to pressuring UW to take concrete actions on behalf of students of color. Werner says the situation facing many students is nothing short of a mental health crisis. Many students of color have expressed to me and to other faculty members that they are extremely uncomfortable on campus right now. They're afraid to be here. They're afraid of harassment. They're afraid of physical attack. We said it in these terms, and we would stand by it. It's a mental health crisis on campus. If the community as a whole doesn't find an effective way to respond, uh, it poisons the atmosphere. Werner says right-wing bloggers have been sowing false information that university money was used to bail King out of jail last week. Werner says the department, in particular King's professor, has received an overwhelming number of threatening emails and calls. There have been an enormous number of harassment uh, emails. Uh, The vast majority of them anonymous uh, have been directed at Professor Almiron, uh, at other students, at students... uh, both graduate and undergraduate on campus and other faculty members. We are under attack. I think we're dealing with it okay. Uh, UWPD has cooperated with forwarding uh, of messages, and those should be treated, you know, as any other messages of the sort. On Thursday morning, April 14th, two UW police officers entered the Afro-American Studies class of Professor Johanna Almiron already in session. 
They descended the lecture hall stairs and escorted King Shabazz, also known as Denzel McDonald, into the hallway. The following audio from one officer's body-mounted camera was released by UWPD the next day. Can you keep your hand in your pocket for me? For what? For our safety. For our safety? All right, stop. For me. You take your hands out of your pockets for me. Stop in my pockets. All right, man. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's just for just to make yeah. sure. We have never met you before. We're just making sure. This is my student. Yep. Yes. And I'm, I'm here. Sure. I'll talk to you real quick outside. You're good. Yeah, I'm good. All right, man. So I'm Justin. So is it King or is it Denzel? I mean, it don't matter. What do you want me to call you? Just a human. Just a human? Shabazz was subsequently arrested and booked into Dane County Jail, and he faces 11 criminal counts of vandalism and one of disorderly conduct. UWPD was quick to issue an apology for the interruption to a class in session. Spokesperson Mark Lovacott said the department is still looking into it. We're looking into what exactly happened um, and, and making sure it doesn't happen again. Although King Shabazz was scheduled for arraignment in court today, sources say that has been put on hold and charges have not yet been filed. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Darian Lehman. Hurricane Annie Ripper stealing off a church and kill everyone inside. You turn on the telly and every other story is telling you somebody died. My sister killed a baby cause she couldn't afford to feed it. Sending people to the moon. In September, my cousin tried reefer for the very first time. Now he's doing horse. It's June. Former Wisconsin governor and U.S. Senator Gaylord Nelson founded Earth Day in 1970 to promote awareness about the environment. But how high is environmental awareness among today's students nearly a half century later? WRT campus reporter Manny Braverman filed this report. We asked students on campus what environmentally friendly actions they were taking this week. Not surprisingly, recycling was the most common answer. Well, I make sure my roommates recycle and... I think we all use water bottles, just kind of the basic things. We aren't driving, so and I try to get paper bags instead of plastic bags wherever I go. I'm a vegetarian for, um, for sustainable reasons, and um, I try to live sustainably. I don't know if I do everything that I can, but um, I put in some effort. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Mostly just try to take, like, public transport or walk places or recycle, that's probably the most I do. I live in Whitty actually and we have three different bins to recycle with so there's like plastic in one, paper in another and then normal trash. Um, we also compost. I try to be really good about like recycling. I'm really good about like separating everything when I'm throwing stuff away. I guess those are like little things but I definitely try to do that. Just how much trash does campus generate? Well, the amount of paper used in campus restrooms annually could cover all lanes of I-94 from Madison to Milwaukee, for starters. Recycling bins may be posted around campus, but do students really take the time to figure out what they can and can't recycle? Waste handlers have a term called the contamination rate to explain the percentage of materials they find in the trash which could have been recycled. The average contamination rate in UW academic buildings in 2014 was 23%. That means that nearly one out of every four coffee cups that could have been recycled were just tossed in the trash, for example. I did a little research on the materials that can and cannot be recycled and gave a pop quiz to students on campus. 
Are you ready for the quiz? Do you know which of these materials can be tossed in regular recycling bins? Styrofoam? Pizza boxes? What about milk cartons? How about any metal pots and pans you can't take with you on move out day? Here's what the students said. Milk cartons can be recycled, pizza boxes. You can recycle pizza boxes as long as they don't have grease on them. I, I honestly don't really know. Pizza boxes and the milk cartons can be recycled. I'm not sure, that's a really actually harder quiz than I thought. Styrofoam, the only one you can't? Uh, I think pots and pans is the only one that you can, if I had to guess. Ready for the answers? Styrofoam cannot be recycled. Pizza boxes also can't if they have any grease from the pizza on them, but milk cartons can. Metal pots and pans can also be recycled. How about these? Cereal boxes? What about plastic bags? How about light bulbs? And batteries? Cereal boxes you can. Not the light bulbs. I think yes to the plastic bags. They can be recycled. I'm going to say light bulbs can be. That's it. Here are the correct answers for the city of Madison. Cereal boxes you can recycle. Plastic bags you also can, but you should put them all together in another bag. Light bulbs cannot be recycled. Batteries can only be recycled at certain collection sites. So, in other words, don't toss them in the cart. The students I talked to were Colleen Whitley, Jordan Gruel, Stephanie Siebers, Stephanie Stoller, Angie Sperry, Brett Harveth, and Bob Diekelman. Reporting for WORT News, this is Maddie Braverman. The president of Madison College, Jack Daniels, says he wants the school to play a bigger role in the lives of Madison's students of color. As part of that effort, Daniels says the Tech and Community College is proposing to expand the college's South Madison campus, currently located in the Villager Mall off South Park Street. He wants to pay for it by shuttering the downtown campus, citing declining enrollment and the cost to rehab and maintain the building that once housed Madison Central High School. This week, Daniel spoke with WORT's Darian Lehman about his vision for a Southside expansion, the fate of which will be decided by the Madison College Board on May 4th. On the phone with us today is Dr. Jack Daniels, president of Madison Area Technical College. Dr. Daniels, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. I wanted to begin by asking you to sketch out your vision for expanding MATC's presence in South Madison. Why South Madison and why now? So last year... Uh, we spent eight, nine months looking at the issue and brought to the board a recommendation of trying to get something on South Madison as well as the cell DTEC, Downtown Educational Center. The board, it was a four to four vote, so it didn't pass, and they requested that we come back with a little bit more deeper information about both DTEC and the South Madison initiative, but bring them at the same time. <laughs> We, what we were doing for the last nine months is taking the information and providing greater data that reflects, number one, what is the college's mission, what is our vision, what is our values. All that's tied into 
from a strategic standpoint, where we want to go and where we need to serve individuals, and what is the role of a two-year institution in serving this community? As we look at poverty, and this is about how do we deal with an impoverished community, the poverty that we're looking at in communities goes all the way from Stoughton Road all the way over to Gammon. And to offer programs that lead to a degree, certificate, provide the types of services that you need for uh, retention and persistence of students. And those services range anywhere from counseling and advising to financial aid to other services that we would provide to ensure that students are going to be successful. That's that whole initiative as we think about the South Madison area, I guess I would call it. So MATC already has a presence in South Madison, but it doesn't offer any degree-granting programs there. If this proposal is approved, what kinds of courses or services would be offered? Uh, Would it reduplicate the kind of offerings at the Trex campus, or would it specialize? There's going to be some natural duplication from arts and sciences, because we will put math classes out there. We'll put some of the other classes necessary for students to obtain college-level credit from which they can transfer. Programs like child development, our early childhood education program, we would locate down there. We have a program that deals with what we call bridges. We may have five, six bridges right now. They are those types of programs that develop pathways for students who may not be at the college level among entry, but we're providing them that pathway to get the types of skills and credentials necessary so they can go to work. Uh, Entrepreneurship, that would be another group of classes that we would offer there. Business classes, some business classes would be offered there. And we're trying to put together a program that actually leads to a degree, transferable as well as credentialed. That's what we would put at South in addition to the wraparound services that students need so they can be successful. And if this proposal is approved, we could see some of this expansion start to happen as early as 2017. Is that correct? If they approve the expanded facility, we would start to have some of those classes down in our expanded facility, knowing that we would then transition when we were able to find a permanent facility from which we could have the full comprehensive type of campus. The proposal has generated some criticism in part because it would entail leasing MATC's downtown building near the Capitol. Now, is leasing the downtown building the only way to make the Southside expansion financially viable? And do you see any trade-offs or potential risks to giving up that prime real estate? Well, first of all, we're not giving up the prime real estate. The asset here is the land not even the building. And as you think about the asset being the land, we are providing an opportunity for a company to come in. They really have two options. They can actually take that whole building and redo it, or they can actually raise it and bring something else in there. But what we gain from that is the annual lease payments that could be as high as 900000 a year. Right now, we operate, uh, our operational cost is about 900000 so just looking at DTEC downtown, that's about a $1.8 million funds that's coming back into our institution that we will be able to use for student success. We'll be able to use it for, it could be remodeling projects, uh, any of those types of things that we can use those dollars for. I think it also has to be understood about the decline of enrollment 
at DTEC. DTEC is running right now at about 21% efficiency. <laughs> so we've got declined enrollment. We've got operational costs that is really very high for the amount of space that we have. Because so we've got 168,000 usable square feet down there. And the college doesn't need that, that much square footage, additional square footage within its confines. Hence why we also were closing down west. Now, there's a question about uh, accessibility that, you know, the downtown campus is uh, more accessible to public transportation. There's a lot more bus routes that go by there. Your argument is is that the south side uh, campus expansion would make MATC more accessible uh, to an underserved population. Is that correct? Um, That's is, correct. What about um, the question of public transportation or? I recognize the argument of the number of buses that come to the downtown area, to the uh, center of the of the city. In the south area, you've got a bus terminus. You've got at least four or five different types of routes that come into there all day, every day. And they're coming from the Gammon, from Gammon, as well as from Verona, all the way over to South Broadway and beyond. And so it's a, the area could actually be quite accessible for transportation. The MATC District Board deadlocked last year when it voted on this proposal. Are you confident that the vote, which will take place on May 4th, will be different this year? What exactly has changed uh, since that last vote? I will not project what's going to happen. (laughs) Uh, What I'm going to do is, which I've done, is to provide the base evidence of how we better meet our mission and our vision. How can we better serve the underserved, underrepresented, underemployed and unemployed population of our area and where that where is that densest where is that density from which we can serve them and then the board will have to make that own determination by themselves which way they want to go with this with the recommendations that's been presented we've been speaking with Jack Daniels president of Madison Area Technical College Dr. Daniels thanks again for taking some time to talk with us about the proposed Southside expansion I appreciate it On this week's Madison History Podcast, Stu Levitan takes us back nearly a century to a dark chapter in city history when Madison's mayor deputized members of the Ku Klux Klan. I want to tell you about Mayor Milo Kittleson, who served from 1920 to 1926 and was one of Madison's most influential, even visionary mayors. He also did something really terrible. He was only 15 when he came to Madison in 1889, just passing through on his way to college in Indiana. He liked the city so much, he decided to stay. 35 years later, he did something to save downtown. He also did something to terrorize the Greenbush neighborhood. In January 1924, the city was closer than ever before to solving a long-term problem, where to build a new city hall. Everyone agreed the current 66-year-old building built to all the construction standards of 1858, had to go. Antiquated, inadequate, and not a credit to a city the size and importance of Madison, Kittleson said. 
Voters had long agreed, approving a $100,000 bond issue for New City Hall back in 1912. Twelve years later, the council said it finally found a site. Three lots on West Johnson Street, between State and Broome, where a series of restaurants, bars, and brew pubs has been since. That was vacant since the Houseman Brewery burned down in March 1923. Now, the site itself was absurd on its face. Not only would it kill the idea of a grand mall of public buildings from the Capitol to the lake, which John Nolan proposed in his seminal book, Madison, A Model City, and which we would later fulfill with Martin Luther King Boulevard, but it would put municipal offices directly on a one-way arterial road. And it would cost $57,000 for property only assessed at 17.5. Kittleson said no. Your action, he told the council in his veto message, has brought forth from our people in every section of the city and from all walks of life, regardless of personal interest, storms of protest and objections. Kittleson's veto kept the fight to cite a new city hall alive until the city-county building was approved, just where John Nolan said it should go, in 1953. Kittleson, who later lived in a city landmark at 1102 Spate Street, did a lot of other good things too. He was the first mayor to propose an auditorium on the Lake Monona shoreline, a generation before Frank Lloyd Wright had the same idea. He said the city should create a park on Lake Mendota by buying the Conklin Ice House and property at the end of North Hamilton Street. The city finally did that in the late 1930s, the place we now call James Madison Park. Upset at odors and contaminations from what he called the muck from the sugar factory, he had the city dredge Lake Monona and buy the adjacent lowlands. He called coal an abominable nuisance, which had to be abated and proposed a full-time superintendent for waste removal. He annexed the town of South Madison and bought land for the Breeze Stevens Athletic Field, a downtown school and playground, and the Nine Springs Tract for a new sewer disposal plant. He called for a permanent board of health, a new hospital to treat contagious diseases, and the consolidation of city and school health services under one full-time physician. And it was Kittleson who said traffic on the square should go one way. But then there was that business with the Ku Klux Klan in December 1924. Kittleson's Klan connection wasn't new. Two years earlier, as mayor, he endorsed a Klan plan for a full induction ceremony on a farm south of town, saying the Klan should, quote, be given the same consideration as any other organization. Then the Rum War of 24 brought a new level of violence to the Greenbush. There had already been three murders in the Italian community that year, when rookie patrolman Herbert Drager was shot down in a shotgun ambush on December 1st at Milton and Murray Streets, near the intersection they called Dead Man's Corners. Three weeks later, a few days before Christmas, Kittleson and the president of the Police and Fire Commission secretly deputized about 30 Klansmen to join police officers on prohibition raids through the bush. They didn't even tell the chief of police until 15 arrests were made. At trial, the judge barred any mention of Klan involvement. Kittleson lied and denied what he'd done, but he did pay for the raid through his official account. The Women's Club and the Baptist Church both endorsed the raid, as did the council by reimbursing Kittleson's office fund. And that's this week's Madison History Podcast. For WORT News, I'm Stu Levitate.
you will send for the foul all in line to be the teacher, Miss Kathleen. First was Kevin, then came Lucy, third in line was me. All of us were ordinary compared to Cynthia Rose. She always stood at the back of the line, a smile beneath her nose. Her favorite number was 20, and every single day. If you ask me what you had for breakfast, this is what she'd say. Starfish and coffee, maple syrup and jam. Butterscotch clouds and a tangerine, the side on a ham. If you set your mind free, baby, maybe you understand. Starfish and coffee, maple syrup and jam. In the latest installment of This Is What I Ate, WORT food critic Nigel O'Shea tells us about his visit to Sophia's. I like food. Food tastes great. Let me tell you about the food. This is what I ate. If you were to make a brief list of what makes you return to a restaurant, the food is most likely going to top it but restaurants offer other amenities that can also make them favorable. Short wait times, food coming out fast, a certain intimate privacy at your table, or other small things, like they take all forms of payment or are open seven days a week. These little conveniences can add or subtract to your likelihood of frequenting a place, even if the food is pretty good overall. What if I recommended a place with typically long waits, shared communal seating, and was only open two days a week. You'd think I was crazy, right? Sophia's Bakery and Cafe at 831 East Johnson Street is indeed only open two days a week. It's a small hole-in-the-wall place where you order at the counter, which typically has a long line unless you get there early, and then you have to screw up the courage to ask other patrons if you can share their table with them. Sophia's has survived to be a Madison weekend brunch institution, People line up and fill the restaurant all two-day weekend long. When the weather is nice, those crowds spill into the small patio seating area. And before they bumped out the patio onto Johnson Street and added proper outdoor seating, people gladly ate over TV trays on the sidewalk. Along with breakfast, Sophia's provides a small batch bakery with coffee cakes, bunk cakes, croissants, and when we visited, they even made the rare Danish. The self-serve coffee is a good, strong, and earthy roast, and I highly recommend taking the sting out of your brunch weight by ordering one of their yummy cakes or pastries. Sophia's makes some of the best croissants in town, and when I conveniently lived in an apartment across the street, I would often skip the crowd, well, as much as I could, and grab myself a couple of those to go. On this particular visit, we shared an almond poppy seed bunt cake with cherries. The cake was a little dry, easily remedied by a sip of coffee, but the whole cherries burst the scene with a tart flavor and complemented the almond. I ordered one of their omelets, which are part of a rotating menu that includes some consistent items like black bean tacos, the croissant breakfast sandwich, the cottage cheese pancakes, or the croissant french toast. I'm typically not an omelet guy because one, it's a lot of eggs, and two, so many omelets I've had are either over or undercooked. All of Sophia's omelets are made with three organic eggs, and mine was filled with roasted red and poblano peppers, caramelized Vidalia onions, Cajun sausage which tasted like andouille to me, and cheddar jack cheese. 
I like that the omelets have a nice brown sear to them because it indicates that the inside is cooked, despite the slightly burnt aesthetics. The eggs were still fluffy and moist, even with the sear, and their homestyle potatoes had a good crisp character, while being soft and not overly done. Potatoes create a unique problem for breakfast places, because for the most part the potatoes need to be pre-cooked, but ready to fry crisp. A lot of homestyle breakfast potatoes, because of how long it actually takes to cook a potato, spend too much time on the grill and start to skin up and turn dark. Sophia's does great in the homestyle potato department and adds a few yams in there for variety and color. Sophia's Bakery and Cafe at 831 East Johnson Street is not convenient. It's only open two days a week, produces long lines, makes you share a table with someone, and doesn't accept anything but cash or check. But against all odds, Sophia's has become a favorite breakfast and brunch spot in Madison, and maybe it's partly because it pushes you out of your comfort zone and flies in the face of cookie-cutter weekend brunch operations. The food is solid homestyle cooking, and the pastries and cakes could almost stand on their own without other breakfast options. Every time I've had breakfast at Sophia's, I've been forced to strike up a conversation with my Madison neighbors, and I realize that this is a good thing. Sophia's provides a good breakfast, strong coffee, and an excellent forum for meeting the people of Madison. I like food, food tastes great. Let me tell you about the food. This is what I ate. Owen Mays was a young country and folk singer from Columbia County, Wisconsin. Mays unexpectedly passed away while visiting Madison last year, and now a childhood friend and his family are working to preserve Mays' music. Tone Madison editor Scott Gordon shares the story. Hi, I'm Scott Gordon from ToneMadison.com. Second place in your heart can never be enough. You were just killing time I was falling in love Now I hear the devil Falling down below I'll soon be falling I guess all I had Ain't enough You're hearing a song called It Ain't Enough written and performed by Owen Mays, a country singer who grew up in Cambria, Wisconsin, about 40 miles northeast of Madison. He was in Madison last July, getting ready to play a summer festival, when he died unexpectedly from a congenital heart defect. He was only 32 years old. I'm sad to say that I didn't know much about Owen Mays until after his death. He carved out a stubbornly underground following, touring extensively in the United States and Europe. As you can probably hear, he was also stubborn in his music, sticking to the Hank Williams aesthetic, but writing a lot of great songs in that style. Fortunately for his fans, and for those of us who are new to his work, May's family and friends have been doing some work lately to preserve his legacy. In the past few weeks, several of the albums and EPs he recorded have popped up on Bandcamp, and there will be more material on the way to help us remember this less appreciated but masterful country songwriter. This week, I met up with May's childhood friend, Michael Smith, who now lives in Stevens Point and is leading the effort. We spoke on the patio of the Willie Street Pub and Grill, where Mays played many shows. In the past, I did kind of manage everything for him, but then uh, he started, 
he went to other labels and things like that. So then I just kind of backed off. So I used to do it all for him. And so it wasn't a like a hard transition to hop back into it. But since his passing, his mom basically put me in charge of it. But it was more of a, a preservation effort. He had kind of started a lot of little things, but didn't necessarily finish them off. So that's what we're working on. And I think it was important to him and his career that this music written in 1911 somehow existed and made it you know, 105 years later to his ear so that he could perform it. The same thing might be the case with his. For Smith, it's mostly about just making the music accessible. You probably shouldn't expect an elaborate Kickstarter campaign or anything like that. But there is some unreleased material that Smith would like to put out. We have a cover album in the works of demos and, and cover songs and such that he had recorded and practiced and we're working on the licensing, but we're hopefully we're going to get that out this year too. Yeah. What were some of the covers that he played for that? My favorite was Wicked Game by Chris Isaac, which you wouldn't necessarily expect, but it comes out hauntingly beautiful. <laughs> but uh, uh, standards too, Hank Williams, but Rolling Stones, other songs with his twist and flair on them, yeah. Smith and Mays became friends during a fight in middle school. I don't know if we're both jackals and coyotes in the sense that we didn't necessarily always start trouble, but we certainly didn't mind finding it. <laughs> we just happened to find it in the same day, I guess. I hear lots of folks talk about freedom. They ain't got no clue what it means. They all know if you try to fight it, you'll wind up in the jail or on the street. Must we fight from the cradle to the grave Just to keep the jackals all at bay It breaks my heart how they wreck our country And take more of our freedom every day If you don't look right you get locked up They don't care if you broke no law Although Mays was very traditional in his approach to country music, he wasn't narrow in his tastes. Smith remembers that as the two grew up together, they also bonded over metal and hip-hop. He says that Mays was, quote, a student of all music and developed an extraordinarily deep knowledge. Smith believes that perhaps that love for musical history is what led him to country and folk music. It was, it was certainly different. He was huge into metal. We were both into rap, anything that was uh, strong. It didn't even have to necessarily be aggressive, but something powerful. And, Pro wrestling is just we loved charisma. It's what we related to. So it, it's kind of like this is these people are doing what we want to be doing. This is who we watch. And his progressed, I think, like, especially as he got older, to some uh, a comfort zone, you know, some place he felt he belonged. I think he did. He learned everything he could about metal, and it, it spread to other genres very quickly. And uh, he learned as much as he could from everyone. And he kind of traded the story he tells. I think he traded in his Les Paul for a a knockoff Martin, and that was pretty much the, the the permanent switch for him, I would say. Smith also occasionally played with Mays and helped him with things like recording and graphic design, so he has a pretty deep connection with the material. My favorite right off the top of the head is always going to be Greyhound Song. Greyhound Song? Yeah, it was off of, uh, it was the first, one of the first ones we recorded in his basement, the uh, Red Wine and White Lines was, we recorded in his basement with like a Behringer five-channel mixer and like two SM57s or whatever the solid state version of that mic was. <laughs> that was that was the whole album we did the demo and and that was one of the first ones I think that I 
it, it hit me sort of at the time is just we were having fun and doing what we wanted to do is just natural progression i got more into engineering and mixing and graphics and stuff like that he was more into performing and i would do more of the business and stuff i we both certainly enjoyed our roles but then he started learning more of it too which was awesome because i got to help him out and show him like you know masking techniques for photoshop and stuff like that but uh yeah greyhound's on now and it kind of hits me it, it found its place in my heart, I guess, whether I knew it was there or not. So I guess I keep rambling till they lay me in the ground. Wasting time till I lose my mind and head for another town. Down the lonesome highway looking for a life that can't be found. By the grace of God and the power of Greyhound, I'll be moving on. You can learn more about Owen Mays and hear more of his music at owenmays.bandcamp.com. Thanks to Michael Smith for joining me this week. For ToneMadison.com and WORT News, I'm Scott Gordon. That'll do it for WORT's Weekend Review. We are live from our downtown studios Monday through Thursday at 6 o'clock over on the FM dial 89.9. You can listen live or anytime at WORTFM.org. Thank you to our contributors this week, Darian Lehman, Maddie Braverman, Nigel O'Shea, Stu Levitan, and Scott Gordon. Molly Stentz is the news director at WORT, and my name is Dylan Brogan. Just keep listening to the ward, and you'll know what's going on out there. Do I believe-